The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like for you to take your Bibles, if you would please, and open them to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Now, before I begin the message today, I do want to express my thanks for all the prayers of the church for the time that my wife and I were away on vacation. We knew that you were praying for us and and uh, it was good for us and we appreciate that very much. This may all seem seamless to you. We, we've been gone for a little bit over two weeks, but you wouldn't have known that unless I told you because the recordings have gone on each week um, just as they normally would. And so I'd also like to express my appreciation to those who stuck with me to record uh, two sermons on many days so that we would have these sermons ahead of time and you would be able to hear them while we were gone. So thanks to our crew here that uh, helped us in, in doing that so we could go on without any interruption. But now we want to look in Ephesians chapter 6 again today and... Uh, It's good to be back in the word of God on the Lord's day. The apostle John in the book of Revelation wrote, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I trust as we open our Bibles to this text that we are in the spirit. And that's because we need the spirit to guide us into the truths that we find in this great passage. Now, I want to warn you that today's message is a little more detailed than most. You you will need to pay close attention because we will discuss today some very important theological concepts. Now, our discussion is about Christian warfare, which for many doesn't really make too much sense. Before becoming a Christian, you you would never imagine this that you would you would welcome the opportunities to fight battles and to live a difficult life. Now, we much rather think that when we become Christians, that our lives would be easy and there wouldn't be much conflict. And yet when we trust Christ and we begin to live for him, we are destined to conflict. The Bible is very clear about this, that we will be involved in a spiritual battle. The opposition to us is is great. And instead of backing up and backing down when that opposition comes and instead of renouncing our faith, we relish this opportunity to be tested and tried for the Lord and to receive the status that he promises of good and faithful servants. Tribulation, the word of God says, works patience. Patience is perseverance and it builds our character and as our character builds we become more like Christ and as we do we gain the approval of our Lord and we are filled with greater hope in our salvation now perseverance then I believe is another term for Christian warfare and our fighting our our battling our warfare this is the process of persevering in the faith Now, since the Bible has so much to say about perseverance, it must mean that there is much to overcome. Spiritual warfare is real because we live in a sin-cursed world. We're citizens of a different country. We live and we serve a king who is not of this world. But on the other hand, the citizens of this earthly kingdom have sworn their allegiance to the God of this world, and they will help him defend his territory. Well, since we are in foreign territory, we must fight those who don't share our values. I was thinking of this and working on this sermon on the same day a few weeks ago that President Trump named Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. And... Looking at that situation and that nomination and now the affirmation of her as a Supreme Court justice, you you ask, what was the main complaint against her? And the main complaint was that she believes in life, that she believes in preserving life and that life is sacred. And what is the principle that rules this world? 
Well, it's the principle of death. The God of this world is the God of death. Jesus said that. He said that the devil is a liar. He is a murderer. And he said the devil is a destroyer. And so we can well expect that the devil's business will be death. And those who criticize Christians for our pro-life stance are just staying true to the allegiance to their God. Politicians try to protect the God who is the God of death. Now, my point in mentioning this uh, in the meltdown of liberals and others in government and those in the news media over the court appointment, the point is that they are afraid that someone is going to put on the brakes and slow down the headlong plunge into hell. And just like Satan, they resist saving this world from death. How anti-God it is for those who make sexual perversion and murder the sacrosanct planks of their party. It is truly a shame. Well, we are without delusion. This is a fight. If we're determined to uphold truth and righteousness, then we can expect opposition and there will be a fight. But, of course, we're also told in this passage that we're not fighting physical warfare. In Second Corinthians, Paul said that our weapons are not carnal. They're not of the flesh. So this isn't a fist fight and we don't go about attacking others with physical weapons. We're not in that type of a war. We're not in a business of harming people. No, this is spiritual warfare, and this warfare takes spiritual preparation. If we are to survive, and if we are to be salt and light to a sinful world that's under the judgment of God's wrath, then we need protection. And this protection is in the form of spiritual virtues and graces, which the Apostle Paul terms the armor of God. We are told to put on the whole armor of God, the ten panoplyan, that we may be able to withstand the wiles of the devil. Now, we look at verses 13 through 17 of this chapter, and it says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore. Having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, I want to emphasize again that the apostle says the whole armor of God. And then he's careful to list each piece so we're sure that we don't leave any part of our spiritual being unguarded. But I also want to emphasize that spiritual graces are fortified through increasing knowledge of God's word. Jesus Christ is the living word and God works through his word In every part of us, we can't stand without the word. Well, last week we began an examination of our spiritual armor. And in the beginning of verse 14, we are told to gird our loins with truth. And as we learned, girding our loins is an expression of preparedness. This is a phrase that we find throughout the scriptures. It simply means to get ready. At the first Passover, Israel was told to eat the Passover with their shoes on. And they were told to gird up their loins. And that meant they were to be ready to move out because God would deliver them on that night. Now, spiritually speaking, the grace in girding up the loins is to be mentally prepared. It's to be faithful and truthful. It's to know the truth. It's to know what God's word teaches so that we can stand on the foundational principles of our faith. It is our consecration. It's our determination. It's our unfailing commitment to the cause of Christ. Well, moving on now in verse 14, after telling us that soldiers must be prepared and they must be committed and they must have the virtue of truthfulness and they must know the word of God. Paul now moves on to another part of the soldier's armor. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. 
Next is the breastplate of righteousness. Each of these parts of the armor is indispensable. Now, thinking of a soldier in close combat where arrows are flying and swords are swinging and spears are thrusting, who would dare think of going into battle without a breastplate? I mean, even today, a modern soldier doesn't go to war without a breastplate. Our our police officers wear a breastplate, although it's quite different from that of the ancient soldier. And what is his breastplate? Well, he wears a bulletproof vest because it's bullets, not swords and arrows that he must deflect. Now, in the ancient world, the soldier wore a breastplate and it covered the whole torso. It was usually made of tough leather. And sometimes this leather would have pieces of horses hooves that were sewn into it. Sometimes there would be parts of of, uh, the horns of animals. And this was a hard material that would deflect a sword or an arrow. And when soldiers were a little bit better equipped, they would have pieces of metal on their breastplate. Or they might even have an entire breastplate made of metal or of mail, which was a, a woven metal. A soldier had to be strong because this breastplate that he carried was heavy. He had to be ready to go into battle. So uh, a, a breastplate that covered the whole torso was necessary because that protected his vital organs. And beneath this breastplate that extended down to the thighs were his vital parts. Under it are the heart and the, the lungs, his liver, his stomach and his intestines and so on. <clears throat> and if I might mention the lower parts of the body, the bowels, the intestines, these were of special interest to the ancients because they believed that the bowels, that was the place of the emotions. The affections were found there. Now, all of the organs underneath the breastplate were important. And these are what they believed controlled the conscience, the desire and the will. Now, it's, it's, it's interesting that scripture often refers to the lower parts. Um, phrases are used like bowels of mercies. When Joseph saw his brothers after they sold him into Egypt, the Bible says that his bowels did yearn for them. When Job talked about the terrible calamities that fell on him, he said, my bowels boiled and rested not. This is found many times in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Paul used a peculiar expression in Philemon. He told him that the bowels of the saints were refreshed by him. I don't think that we would say it quite that way. I don't think that we would say, my guts feel good because of you. But that's pretty much the meaning. And these expressions were used because our feelings some seem to come from this part of the body. When you're happy or you're sad or you're sad, you might say, well, I have a feeling. And down here is where you get that feeling. It's down in the pit of the stomach. If you think about maybe back when you were a teenager, when your girlfriend dumped you, it was in the pit of the stomach. It was in the lower parts that you felt that down in the bowels. So the ancients were careful to protect these parts of the body, not just the heart and the lungs, but they made the breastplate to stretch down to cover every vital part. Now, in the spiritual sense and making an application of this, Whatever affects the emotions, the desires, the affections, and our will, all of that must be carefully guarded. These are the, the things that rule the direction of our lives. These are the parts that are vulnerable to sin. And if Satan fires one of his fiery darts and hits one of these, it will seriously affect the success of the battle. So what is our breastplate made of? It's not horns, it's not hoofs, it's not leather, it's not metal, not even Kevlar. Our battle is not physical. And so our protection, according to this passage, the protection of all these vital parts is righteousness. It is the breastplate of righteousness. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you would ask, what kind of righteousness And that is a great question and an extremely important one in this context. 
There are different types of righteousness. And if we desperately need a breastplate of righteousness to fight Satan, then we need to know of what it consists. Which type is it? Well, let's talk about that. But we'll start here first, that sometimes people struggle with theological words. Righteousness is not a difficult word. Now, if we apply a a simple humanistic definition, it means uprightness. It means moral rectitude. It means to be justified according to a lawful standard. Now, the theological definition of righteousness is a little bit more refined. It means to be justified according to God's law. It is to be morally upright as defined by God's standard. When we're righteous in in God's eyes, our moral character, our attitude, our actions, our obedience is right according to his standard. Well, I think most of you understand why we use the King James Version of the Bible as our preferred translation. Uh, I'm not one who believes the King James Version is the only translation that you would be permitted to read. But I do believe that it is the best. Translations are not perfect because there are no two languages that are exactly alike. And language changes over the years, and that makes it difficult for those who don't read the King James regularly to understand it. But despite this, we believe that the King James Version is better than others, and one of the reasons is the method of translation. Now, today's not my day to discuss Bible versions, but I must mention it here because it is relevant to this discussion. The King James was translated by a method that is called verbal equivalency. To the best of their ability, the the translators translated using the equivalent wording of the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. Now, there are other translations that do this, but the difference is in the manuscripts that they use to translate the New Testament. Now, we believe that the King James has a better foundation because it is translated from better manuscripts. Well, it isn't always possible to use the exact words that come from uh, another language because we might not have an exact equivalent when we translate from one language to another. And sometimes the words aren't even in the same order. Well, many modern versions use dynamic equivalency. And in this type of translation, the translators translate whole thoughts. And no matter what they claim... It's evident that their opinions of what the text means gets put into the text. And that turns the Bible into commentary. In other words, in modern translations, many of them, they are a commentary on the scriptures. And that sneaks into the text. And this is what happens in verse number 14 of Ephesians chapter 6. Here the phrase is, breastplate of righteousness. And instead of leaving that alone, some translators substitute what they think Paul means by breastplate of righteousness. For example, in the New Century Version, this verse reads, So stand strong with the belt of truth tied around your waist and the protection of right living on your chest. God's Word translation reads, So then, take your stand, fasten truth, Around your waist like a belt. Put on God's approval as your breastplate. Now, in the New Century Version, then breastplate of righteousness becomes the protection of right living. And in God's Word translation, it becomes God's approval. And that's the danger of translating according to dynamic equivalency. And, of course, there are some translations that are worse than others. So I believe that what we ought to do is to leave the commentary to the commentators and not to the translators. In John Wycliffe's translation of this verse in the 14th century, and Wycliffe was the first to translate the scriptures into English, he translated this phrase as habergen of righteousness. Now, what I'm trying to say is that righteousness is left as righteousness. It's translated as righteousness. And we don't need someone to impose their meaning on the text. Well, what are the different types of righteousness that are claimed as the meaning in this verse? Well, the first 
would be individual righteousness. And this is the aberrant interpretation that we've just read. That is right living, being a clean living person, one who lives in holiness. And I do believe, of course, that it's absolutely essential that we be holy people. God demands holiness. And any Christian that doesn't live a good moral life can never expect to conquer spiritual enemies. Your lifestyle is important to God. It's essential to your effectiveness and to your influence on lost people. And it's also essential to your own peace of mind. You must live righteously for communion and fellowship with God. So make no mistake, you must be a person who regards personal holiness. But I don't think this adequately describes the complete meaning of this text. In fact, the first time that you approach Satan with your goodness, and if your defense against piercing fiery darts to the devil is your own best effort, then you'll find it doesn't afford much protection. And do you know why? It's because the devil can beat you down. At your best, you are not good enough to completely cover yourself. Sometimes you'll find that Satan messes with your mind by causing you to compare yourself to other Christians. Now, if you read about Christians in the past that went through trials that you've never seen, have had hardships that you've never experienced, and yet they remain giants of the faith, and they had their exemplary study and knowledge of the Scriptures. And you look at that, and you see how far short you are of their abilities. You see that you don't measure up. And you remember this, I hope, from previous messages, that one of Satan's tactics is to tempt you to measure yourself by the abilities of other Christians. A breastplate that is made of personal righteousness, that is how far that you have advanced in the faith, is not good enough. Now, I believe that Paul understood this well, that that kind of righteousness would not be enough protection. In Philippians, he said, if there was anyone who had reason to trust his personal integrity, it was him. He was the consummate Hebrew. He called himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As touching the law, he said that he was blameless. Then, you remember, he went through this whole thing about his heritage and how that his family tree was better than most because he could trace his ancestry through the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin was one of the favored sons of Jacob because he was born from the love of his life from Rachel. Benjamin was a part of the southern kingdom that wasn't scattered and though they did go into captivity in Babylon, they remained, uh, they maintained their identity so that when they returned to the land, the Jews from that tribe, even in the time of Jesus, could still prove and track their heritage. Only Judah, Benjamin, and Levi could do this. The rest had intermarried with Assyrians and were Samaritans. Now, of course, in Philippians, Paul is speaking of what he was before he met Christ. Well, after he met Christ, he wasn't less morally upright. No, his obedience was better because he became a Christian. But even then, it wasn't enough. This type of personal righteousness uh, was necessary. And so it is a basis for the breastplate. But living out this righteousness alone doesn't satisfy and solidify the breastplate. So he goes on in Philippians chapter 3 that said, to say that he needed the righteousness of God, which is by faith. And so I don't believe in Ephesians 6 that Paul could mean a breastplate of protection afforded by personal righteousness. Now let me make two points about this. Obviously, we can't be talking about self-righteousness. This is not self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is how most people believe they become right with God. They believe they become righteous by doing good things. Sometimes when we read the scriptures and we, we read about the Pharisees of Jesus' time, we think, oh, what, what bad people they were, what immoral people they must have been. But religiously, other people didn't think that they were bad people. In fact, they thought they were the best people. 
This is the reason that Paul touted his Phariseeism. They were good people. They were the best of people and they were proud of it. At least in their own eyes, they thought that they were morally pure. Of course, they didn't understand Jesus' true definition of the law, but they did try harder than anybody to keep the law, even inventing new laws. These are the people that Jesus referred to when he told the common folks that their righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, there was no one who could imagine that the Pharisee standard was too low. I mean, none of the common people could keep the standard. And if an even greater standard was required, then how would they keep the greater? You remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus? He wanted to know, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus went through the commandments with him. And that man proudly said, well, all of these things I have kept from my youth up. What do I lack yet? Well, he wasn't a bad person. He was a good person in his personal righteousness. And yet he was far from the righteousness that God requires. And so he measured himself by the wrong standard. He was trying to keep up with that pharisaical system. But the standard that he could reach was too low to be God's standard. God's standard is perfection. There is no one who goes to heaven without perfection. And so in our text, Paul could not have meant self-righteousness. Now, now next is that this is not self-imposed righteousness. Now, that first one, self-righteousness, that's the attempt to achieve salvation by religious activities. That would be by keeping sacraments, by doing benevolent works and many other religious enterprises. And that never works because it never achieves God's standard. Well, after you get saved, neither can you depend on self-imposed righteousness for protection. And this is what various fundamental groups substitute for the armor. They believe that sanctification is achieved by following a particular set of rules. Well, let me make my position on this clear. I'm not opposed to good moral standards. Of course, I'm not. I'm not opposed to men looking like men and women looking like women. I'm not opposed to godly dress and habits, but I am opposed to the teaching that keeping rules will make people holy rather than their holiness being a response of grace in a person who is already consecrated to obey Christ. And I've been around long enough to know that many of the most hypocritical and judgmental people are products of groups that hammer people with constant rules. And what rules keepers are usually the best at is finding exceptions to their own rules. Well, I think that Paul would look at this as modified Phariseeism. Now, there is no question that God expects us to live holy lives. But I don't think that adequately describes Paul's meaning. And poor translations of Scripture would lead you in that direction. Now, secondly, another type of righteousness is infused righteousness. Well, what is infused righteousness? Well, we have to be careful sometimes using these terms because they don't always mean the same thing to everybody. Infused righteousness is the approach of Roman Catholicism. It's a mixture of truth and error, which is the case with much of Roman Catholic doctrine. The Roman Catholic Church agrees. They agree that Christ's righteousness is needed for the believer. But Christ's righteousness is only a starting place. And they believe that this righteousness is infused into the believer, and then it's kept active and remains valid by maintaining good works. And so this righteousness becomes the believer's inherent righteousness, and what he does with it is his own responsibility. And whether or not the person remains saved depends on what he does with this righteousness after he receives it. Now, to put it in another way, the person is justified by both his faith and his works. But the problem with this is that it's nothing more than a modified form of self-righteousness. It's the moral ability of the person to maintain righteousness, which is then his justification. 
In other words, he continues in a justified state by his ability to live and act rightly and to keep all the sacraments of the church. Now, although the breastplate of righteousness is how holiness affects our ability to battle Satan, this is a doctrine that gets transferred from sanctification to justification, which attacks the core central issue of how a person is justified by God. Is it by Christ's work or is it ours? Now, if you want to know the reason there was a Protestant Reformation, this is the answer. After studying the scriptures and being gripped by God, Martin Luther came to the same conclusion that Baptists had been preaching for centuries, that man is justified without the deeds of the law. Now, just as Paul said, there's more needed than personal moral rectitude. Martin Luther discovered that trying to be holy by living as a monk or as a hermit, being deprived, even torturing himself, that was not a path to the righteousness that God requires. He always fell short, and he knew that he hadn't lived by God's perfect standard. Well, Paul is not talking about infused righteousness, because in this sense, it doesn't exist. Christ's righteousness does not become our inherent righteousness. Our inherent righteousness will always be, at best, flawed. Now, we're in a sinful body that can't be perfect. We need another righteousness, one that is impenetrable, because it comes from God himself. It's a breastplate that can't be pierced. Now, let's go on then to a third type of righteousness. This next type, coupled with the fourth, makes the composition of the breastplate of righteousness. Now, this third is imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness is the battleground between true Christianity and false Christianity. Now, we've just noted the Roman Catholic doctrine of infused righteousness. And what that is, is a perverted form of imputed righteousness. Well, what then is imputed righteousness? Well, first, we need to look at the word imputed. It's a word that comes from the financial world. It means to charge something to an account. We would say charge it. Now, when my wife goes shopping, the clerk asks, will that be cash or charge? And, of course, she, being theologically astute, takes out her credit card and says, impute it to this account. Can you imagine her saying that? Impute it to this account. Well, it means charge it to this card. Now, a moment ago, we were talking about inherent righteousness. What is our true inherent righteousness? Well, we don't have the righteousness that God requires, but we do have inherent righteousness. What kind is it? Isaiah 64, 6 describes it. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Now, I don't mean to be uncouth, but I think it is important that we understand what the writer means by filthy rags. This is a term that refers to the dressings, to the strips of cloth that a woman uses during menstruation. And and this means that in God's sight, this is the very best that we have to offer him. Now, obviously, God won't accept it. We need a different type of righteousness. We need a perfect righteousness that comes from God because God alone is perfect in holiness and righteousness. We need a perfect righteousness because God requires perfection. We must be holy as God is holy before we can fellowship and have a relationship with him. Now, God wants us to become his children. We know this. And he knows that the only way that we can is for us to become righteous. But God can't give us his inherent righteousness. God's own righteousness is one of his attributes. That's one of the things that makes him God. He is infinite in righteousness, and he can't give that to a finite creature. So what God did was to provide a way for us to become righteous, for us to become justified, to be right in his sight. And this righteousness is the same as if we had kept all of God's laws perfectly. And God does it by substituting 
the perfection of another for our imperfection. And then he counts that perfection as ours. Now, God's means of making us righteous is to transfer the righteousness of another to us. Now, the question then is, who has this perfect righteousness that can be charged, that can be imputed to our account? God does. And more specifically, Jesus Christ does. Jesus Christ is the manifestation of the invisible God. And he came to the earth as the righteous and holy God. But the righteousness that Christ brought down from heaven with him is not the righteousness that he can give to us. Now, we've already discussed that God can't give his inherent righteousness to a finite creature. A different righteousness is needed. It's righteousness that is alien to us. It's outside of us, but still it relates to God's law. And when Christ came into the world, he lived a perfect life. He kept all of God's law perfectly. He demonstrated a life without sin. And in his humanity, he added another righteousness to his own inherent righteousness. And this is what we call earned righteousness. It's earned by keeping the law. Well, we can't earn this righteousness because we're sinful. Christ can because he's perfect. And so Christ kept all of God's law perfectly and thus earned righteousness. And the righteousness that he earned is credit to us credited to us through our faith in him. He transfers this righteousness to our account so that when God looks at us, he sees that all of our debts are paid. All blemishes on our account are gone. And all he sees is the perfect, clean, white righteousness of Christ that was transferred to us. This is imputation. Christ's righteousness is imputed to our account. It's charged to our account as if we had done everything that God required of us. Now, in essence, this is what it means to be justified by faith. It's to receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. Oh, I believe this is what Paul means. The breastplate of righteousness is the unfailing righteousness that withstands all fiery darts. None of them can penetrate Because it's Christ's righteousness that protects and envelops us. Now, Satan is bigger and stronger. A dart thrown against our righteousness would surely kill us. But when it's hurled at Christ's righteousness, it has no power to penetrate. Now, with this righteousness, Satan, the accuser, has no legal standing. When he accuses God points to the righteousness of Christ and he says, I find no fault in this person. All his sins are covered under the precious blood of the Savior. The Apostle John put it this way in 1 John 2, 1. And if you have your Bibles open there, I'd like you to turn to 1 John chapter 2. And here you can underline some important words in this text. Now, he writes in 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, two words here call our attention to the legalities of salvation. The first word is advocate. Might underline that word. This is the same word translated in other places in the New Testament as paraclete, uh, or comes uh, the, the meaning is paraclete. It means one who is called alongside to help. Now Jesus used this word to refer to the Holy Spirit. Advocate is also another word for lawyer. When we are accused by Satan, Jesus stands as one who is called alongside to advocate, to help, to plead our cause before God, who is the righteous judge. He is our lawyer. Now, in the second verse, John gives the basis upon which our advocate pleads our cause. So the next word that you would underline is the word propitiation. Propitiation is satisfaction. It is appeasement. It's related to atonement 
which in turn is a covering that is put over our sins so it can't be seen. It's satisfaction of God's righteous judgment. So Jesus Christ, our advocate, our lawyer, pleads our cause because he is the one whose perfect life satisfied God. He is the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction, the appeasement of God's wrath. This is the doctrine of imputation and shows that it's more than a one-way transaction. When Christ gives his righteousness to us, he at once takes our sins from us. He takes our sins upon him and the penalty of these sins are paid for at the cross. Now, his righteousness was imputed to us and our sins were imputed to him. Second Corinthians 521 says, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, you might want to take that verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and write it in the margin of your Bible right next to 1 John 2, 1 and 2, because these two verses are the two-way street of imputation. He has made sin for us, and we are made the righteousness of God in him. Now, this is marvelous doctrine. This is the foundation of our faith. It's monumentally great. But when we speak of the breastplate of righteousness, we still need to go a step further. Coupled with the imputed righteousness of Christ is another type. And this is our fourth type. And that is imparted righteousness. Imparted righteousness. Now, it's great to have the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's the basis of salvation. Without it, we will never see God. Imputed righteousness, that takes care of the legalities of salvation. That's the forensic side. That's the side that takes away all of our legal impediments that are lodged against us because of our sin. It is our justification. It is the imputed righteousness of Christ that makes me a Christian. But I need a practical way to work out this righteousness and, and to live in righteousness. And the practical outworking of imputed righteousness is imparted righteousness. This is the work of God in me within the new nature that's been implanted by regeneration. So we have imputed righteousness for our justification and we have imparted righteousness in our regeneration. Imputed righteousness is about the position we have in Christ, while imparted righteousness is about the practice of righteousness. You know, in in this earthly body, in this old nature that's received from our birth in Adam, this old nature is always sinful and it's always with us. There can never be any good that comes out of the old nature. It's sinful and will always be sinful. But when you become a Christian, the Bible says that you are a new creation in Christ. There is a new nature that's implanted in you. And it's in this new nature that comes by regeneration, being born again, that you now have the power to walk in righteousness. And without being born again, you could never do anything good enough to please God because you don't have the power to do it. The power to do it comes through God working in this new nature. And so it's out of the new nature that righteousness and holy living proceeds. It's the new nature that grows in grace. When we talk about the fruits of the spirit, like love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, all that. This is where the spirit works. It's in the new nature implanted by righteous uh, by regeneration. And so the imputed righteousness of Christ given to us through faith enables the imparted righteousness of Christ given in regeneration to work in us. This is the positive, righteous display of what took place in our hearts. And so imputed righteousness activates imparted righteousness. It's the evidence of our salvation. Now, we notice this and we can't miss it, that these both of these are gifts of God. They don't arise from within. And so they exclude self-righteousness. Now, let me add that the evidence will be there. If the evidence of a change is not apparent by imparted righteousness, that is, in the new nature, the, the imputed righteousness of Christ never took place. 
imparted righteousness is demonstrated. It's righteousness in use. From it comes the joy of obedience. And first John, the apostle wrote that we demonstrate love for God by keeping his commandments. Those who don't obey don't love God. That's clear in Scripture. If you don't obey, if you don't keep God's commandments, you don't love God. And you need to remember that if you continue in sin and still say that you're saved. You can't love God and disobey his commandments. The Bible teaches that can't work. Now, from imparted righteousness, then, comes the fruits of the Spirit. We just mentioned these. From imparted righteousness, righteousness practiced, we receive The rewards of faithfulness. We stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the commendation of good and faithful servants. And most importantly, from imparted righteousness comes God's intention for you as his child. He designed you to give glory to him and he will receive glory through your life. Now, in Ephesians 1, Paul writes that our predestination to adoption as the children of God was according to his will, which was the praise of the glory of his grace. And when you put on the breastplate of righteousness, when you live in holiness, you set out for the battlefield for the purpose of glorifying God. This is why you want to be in the battle. This is why you engage yourself in the battle. Paul encourages us to put on this armor because it enables us to show the righteous character of God in our daily living. We reject all deceitful lusts that war against our souls. Now, there isn't a child of God that likes to lose battles. When we lose, we tarnish God's glory in front of a wicked world. We lose the fruitfulness of our lives. We lose our influence for Christ. And what causes that loss of influence? It's sin. So we put on the breastplate of righteousness to live a holy, consecrated life for the glory of God. Romans 12:1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. This, in essence, is our warfare. Dress yourself in God's armor. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Live a holy life. Fight the powers of darkness and win. And only then does the Lord say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you for salvation in Jesus Christ, for justification through faith in him. And Lord, we know what sinful people we are and how difficult it is for us to live daily according to the precepts of your law and how impossible that it is unless we have your help. All of our righteousness must come from you because your word says all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags if we depend on ourselves. Lord, we ask that you would open the hearts of people today and help them to understand that there is nothing they can do to be right with you. There is no work that they can do. There is no sacrament to keep. There is no good thing that any person can do to be justified in your sight. But we're justified only because Christ is good. Christ is righteous. And we're justified because of his work for us, not the work we do for you. So, Lord, we pray that you help us to understand this better and help us to know that we must live holy lives to glorify you, that we put on this breastplate of righteousness to afford us the protection so that we don't fall into sin and we don't become bad testimonies before the world and lose that influence. We don't want to mock your name in being people that are unholy and unlike you. So, Lord, we pray again. Bless your people. Bless our church. Um, We look forward to that time that we can be back together and worshiping you together in this place where when we have questions about a message like this, a message that needs to be heeded and paid close attention to, to understand, to get it down deep into us, Lord, that we would have opportunity to discuss it with people and 
and see reactions of people and be sure that they understand what's being taught. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word to explain these things and how we ought not to just stay with the easy things because fighting this battle is not easy. We need to know more and we strengthen ourselves by knowing the word of God. So, Lord, help us today. We praise your wonderful name again for mercy, love and grace and for salvation in Jesus Christ. And we ask that you watch over us and bless us in these terrible times. Help us to fight this battle as we should. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. And now I'd like to give you a final benediction. This comes from uh, Psalms chapter five. And here the psalm speaks about righteousness and what we achieve or what we receive by the righteousness of Jesus Christ in Psalm chapter five and beginning in verse number eight. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. For thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous. With favor wilt thou compass him as with a shield. We pray God's blessings to be upon you this week. We hope that you'll be safe. I think that we're going to be out just a little bit longer. Not sure how long that will be, but pray that the Lord will will stop the virus in our area. Bring the numbers down so that we can meet together once again. So God go with you. God bless you and all that you do this week. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.